So that's just the very beginning of Rayfon Williams' uh, really famous song and one that I love, um, The Lark Ascending, which was done just after World War I. Imperial Britain, at its height just after World War I, covered 13 million square miles. Its navy controlled the seas. And it claimed to have control over 500 million people. Some 90 nations owed allegiance in some form or another to Britain. And how, we have to ask then, in so short a time did Britain expand so rapidly? And yet, on the other side of this, how, by the end of the century, had this powerful nation see its power? How did this powerful nation see its power recede back to that of being more or less just an island, an archipelago in the north of the Atlantic? One that did, though at this point, maintain vast and important cultural ties that really spanned the globe. We might obviously explain the rise in power in terms of the themes we've already looked at over the course of this class. To the rise of industry, the expanse of the East India Company, and to the ways in which the empire would soon come to control trade networks that had grown wealthy and made the metropole the power that it was. But there were uh, plenty of other matters worth considering. Indeed, the metropole was thriving. Cities like Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, industrial centers, that is, uh, port cities in the case of Liverpool, were growing. But it was, once again, the capital of the metropole that had grown the most. London. Yes, London. London had, over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, grown to become the largest city in the world. It was a city connected to the nation's other centers by vast railway networks. And the Thames itself opened up to create a port that was unrivaled. The area of what is today Canary Wharf, if you're familiar with London, and which was then the Docklands, held warehouses with vast amounts of cargo. These were supplies brought into the empire by ships that went first and foremost to the metropolis, but then could be loaded on rail in different stations posted throughout the capital on its edges, east, north, west, and south, to supply the entirety of Britain. This was the Dickensian London that we have heard so much about, uh, probably through popular culture. Uh, the London of Wordsworth also, and many others. It was a capital that could turn black from soot and smoke, but also one where the wealthiest of the nation could come to do business. Westminster and the old square mile of London had long ago fused together. And by now, the metropolitan area that represented London had spread well beyond to gobble up neighboring townships and even to enter well into other neighboring counties. Surrey, uh, for example, is consumed by London. Over the course of the 19th century, the population of the city would swell from one to six million, a level of change that was truly unprecedented. We might thus consider why London was truly the center of the world. Between May and October 1851, this importance was put on display, and it was done in Hyde Park, London's largest park. 
this this park would play host and the capital would play host to the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations that's a mouthful the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations queen victoria's husband prince albert helped to organize this large fair a show that was meant to display truly the dominion and power and advantage of empire and of britain in particular this massive exhibition took place in a cast iron and glass building known as the Crystal Palace, uh, created by architect Joseph Paxson. And overseeing the construction was uh, Isambard Brunel, a great engineer and iron worker, a leading figure of industry, of the Industrial Revolution, really, who, which had, you know, as we've looked, gripped Britain since large, about the 1760s. So... This exhibition was put on. This was meant to represent not just what was being produced at home by people like Brunel, but also the great works of the empire, of commonwealths, of British colonies and dependencies. Uh, and these numbered uh, well into the dozens and then hundreds. Uh, the exhibits were supposed to thus show the power of empire, really. For instance, they brought together American weapons and weapons producers. So it's not just British rail that wants to be celebrated or British ships in the Navy, but uh, American weapons producers, uh, as these are seen to be tied to, of course, Britain through colonies. And most notably in this case, then we have Colt, who had just completed the iconic 1851 Navy revolver uh, exhibiting in the Crystal Palace as part of this uh, works of industry of all nations. And with so many visitors, this would be a truly remarkable public affair. Admissions to the show were quite expensive for the time. To buy a ticket, you could go for a couple days. You could have a pass that would allow you to attend repeatedly, much like our modern theme parks. But it was really an event for patricians, for the wealthy, or for the connected and those that could afford to enter and be entertained by uh, the celebration of all of this power of empire. It was also fantastically successful. If you're ever in London and hope to gain a sense of the scale of this spectacle, you can find an echo of it. Visit the Victorian Albert Museum. The museum itself was entirely funded by revenue generated by the show at the Crystal Palace. And other important things took place there. If expensive, it was also the first time that an exhibit had constructed paid bathrooms. And just shy of a million people paid a penny over the course of this exhibit to use the facilities. This was, at the Crystal Palace, quite simply the show to end all shows. A physical display of the power of empire bottled up in a glass museum in the largest city in the world, the capital of a metropole that had the largest empire. I don't mean to speak in superlatives here entirely, but it really was the height of industrial power and of imperialism. And this was the gem that displayed it all, a reaffirmation to the British of the success that they had reaped. But this was, again, a show primarily for the wealthy. Some others visited the massive... Hall, this glass structured, and marveled. 
but some probably found the benefactors of industry to be less than celebration-worthy. Indeed, Karl Marx attended. The show would have likely seemed a confirmation of the accumulation of wealth laid out in his own recent publication, The Communist Manifesto, which was first put to print just three years earlier in London. This was quite different from the show that Brunel and his iron looked like. And again, this was by no means meant for all. I have to keep reiterating this. And London was by no means a city for those who were entirely enthusiastic about the progress of industry. As with other industrialized European nations, there was growing discontent in the metropolis. Working conditions had become increasingly dreadful for many, and the charms of monarchy were, in some instances, wearing thin. In 1854, just three years after the palace revealed the wonders of industry and empire, cholera broke out near Broad Street in London. This was, after all, the middle of the global cholera pandemic. But 616 people died in this outbreak in what is today Soho. Other outbreaks in the city had killed thousands. But it was this outbreak that led Jon Snow, and no, not the Game of Thrones Jon Snow, to remove a water pump handle that led to contaminated water. Snow's discovery broke earlier, and frankly, medieval notions about the transmission of sickness. These were believed to be caused by something called miasma, which is more or less steam. It was thought that sickness was carried in uh, pollution and steam. And London, therefore, you can understand, was a place with many sick. But this was an important discovery on the pathway to modern hygiene. It would move the nation to produce more robust sewer networks, that would help to support a city, which at this time was at about 3 million, of 3 million people who put their waste directly into gutters and sewers that fed directly where? Into the Thames. So this is an important step, hygiene on a mass scale, to prevent things like cholera. If these conditions were bad, if outbreaks of cholera were bad, far worse yet were matters in East London, in Whitechapel and further off, and the areas that were, and indeed to a certain extent remain, the homes of newcomers, of immigrant populations who were added, adding to London's unprecedented growth. Whitechapel had long taken, those, taken in those who fled. It was home to Huguenot silk weavers who departed after Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes in 1685, sending French Protestants to settle in London. The East would again be home to the Irish as they fled from famine in the 1840s, and again to Jews fleeing from religious pogroms in the Russian Empire between 1881 and 85. It was in response to the horrors of pogroms that the London-based newspaper, the Jewish Chronicle, was able to print Theodore Herzl's solution to or solution of the Jewish question. Immigration, of course, a tremendous offered a tremendous impact on the city and its population. Uh, many who arrived with little, though found little. It was, in the east of London, a place where destitution continued to proliferate. And in this situation, people turned to desperate measures. Women, in many cases, turned to prostitution. What was once centered on the bank side to the south of the Thames now flourished in the east. 
This is, of course, where Jack the Ripper prowled the streets, at first simply murdering and then later removing body parts from his victims. Speculation was that he was a butcher, given the work of his blades. He took advantage of the desperation of those seeking a place to sleep. Housing was so short that many turned to things called four-penny coffins. This is in the east of London again, and to some case elsewhere, but mostly in the east. And these four-penny coffins were boxes. They were shaped, as their names implied, like coffins where a cold night might be passed. You'd be given a tarp and you would sleep on your back with the assumption that you might get through the coldest of the cold in winter. And if, a def- if desperate and a person had less than the four pennies, the groat that it would take to uh, pay for a four-penny coffin, they might pay the smallest amount, which was for a penny sit-up. This was quite simply a bench, at least a bench sheltered, in which you were not allowed to sleep, but you were allowed to rest. Between these two options was what was known as a two-penny hangover. Literally, this was a rope one could drape their body on to sleep. Have any of you ever had a hangover? Perhaps not. But this is where we get the term hangover. Because along with the destitution that required people to pay to sleep for cold nights indoors was uh, the consumption of alcohol that had them lead to the hangover. Many of these facilities were operated early on by charitable organizations, and these were growing to counter the need and needs of impoverished Londoners. In the case of sit-ups, coffins, and ropes, the Salvation Army was a leading organization. And you get the point, I think. These were brutal conditions, and they were quite a world away from the wonders that were being displayed in Hyde Park with its marvelous spectacle of the Crystal Palace. We have thus a great disparity in the metropolis, in London, of the haves and have-nots, of growing discontent that would perhaps turn to ideas like those put forth by Marx in the Communist Manifesto. And all the while, empire grew. British naval supremacy maintained through to the dawn of the 20th century, and Britain kept up efforts to gain and add to their reach and dominion. In Europe, tensions brewed as nations were in direct competition. Nationalist interests at home and indeed hopes that they might carve up territories abroad renewed old resentments and threatened new conflicts. The leadership of most of Europe was by the turn of the century in some way also related This adds another layer of madness to what was going on. Queen Victoria had a knack for securing marriage alliances. And many wanted to, obviously, have marriage links at this point to the British Empire due to its vast wealth and size. But this meant that the leaders of Europe would be, if not by a degree related, even first cousins. And on the eve of World War I, which would soon be in place, it was the fact that the Germanese Kaiser... Wilhelm II, was first cousins with Tsar Nicholas II of Russia and King George V of Britain. The likenesses between these men, and especially between George and Nicholas, is remarkable. Uh, This, again, adds to the madness that would soon be descent into war. This fact that most of these national leaders, these kings or czars, uh, modeled on the Roman Caesar in title, had uh, really close relations. 
Uh, in one case, we know of this through the correspondence between uh, Wilhelm and Nicholas, which is known as the Nicky Willie correspondence. You have then cousins writing to one another. And in the case of the Nicky Willie correspondence about how to potentially avoid war. But even before a war that, were, that family relations could not prevent, matters of national interest and the desire for imperial expansion had seen nations come to loggerheads. The most recent space to be subject to European interests was Africa, part of the so-called scramble for Africa that made King Leopold of Belgium so wealthy and notorious for extraction of rubber and other resources. And in the case of the British interests, there were other areas. And not least, we see, of course, through what we've read, Churchill in the north with Sudan and Egypt. But there were also massive efforts underway to gain territory in the south and east of Africa. Cecil Rhodes would become a leading advocate of British imperialist expansion in the south of Africa in particular. His position as Prime Minister of Cape Colony and leader of the British South Africa Company led to a series of treaties and territorial acquisitions. Rhodes had been inspired by new ideas about notions of evolution that set apart races and of what he saw as the European race, or in particular for him, the Anglo-Saxon race, which he claimed to be, and I quote here, first in the world. Rhodes would expand Britain's presence yet further by seeking mineral rights and indeed by enforcing a British presence with the private policing forces of the British South Africa Company. Aggressive expansion in South Africa saw the British once again come to war with the Dutch. In two Boer Wars, in which they fought against Dutch farmers, who had been in place for generations, really, since the Boer is here the Dutch word for farmer. A first Boer War commenced in the early 1880s and then ended relatively quickly, but a second war spanned from 1899 to 1902. And participation in the war from the British Commonwealths of Australia and Canada helped to weave together the imperial presence of what war would be. We, we thus get national competition in Africa being fought by dependencies and colonies, former colonies in some cases, that are sending troops to fight in other regions. You can see how this has expanded, how the map is now far larger. At the same time that Australian and Canadian troops were fighting on behalf of the British in South Africa, another individual was present. And this was Gandhi, who was in Africa throughout the Second Boer War, part of a 21-year period that he spent in South Africa as a lawyer against racial inequality, a time that he spent honing his personal political views also. Gandhi helped to raise troops who would fight against the Boers on behalf of Britain, a formative moment when the founder of Peaceful Protest, or Satyagraha, would be active in an imperial British war in Africa. Many people miss that a leading voice in the partition of India, which would be coming later in the 20th century, spent so much time in South Africa. And in, again, this is, I, I have to reiterate, an illustration of the webs that made modern Britain truly global. 
Tensions with Germany were escalating well before the war, and not least in terms of Germany's push to gain territory itself in West Africa, an area that bordered with the South and where the British were fighting again with the Boers. But the biggest point of contention would not come in terms of this territorial dispute in Africa or in terms of encroaching powers, but it would come by way of Britain's efforts to maintain naval supremacy. Germany was rattled by news of Britain's new dreadnoughts in 1906, a first modern example of a powerful metal oil engine-operated ship that could fire huge payloads great distances. Uh, This first dreadnought proved to be so important that the British launched a full new classification of ships known as dreadnoughts. So this became a dreadnought classification. Dreadnoughts would be produced as opposed to the first with the name dreadnought. And anxious over this new military muscle, Germany responded with its own creation of a new classification of ship modeled on the dreadnought. In this case, they'd be Nassau-class ships. And by this point, industrial nations around the world were taking notice and seeking to create their own versions of dreadnoughts. What this essentially did was usher in an arms race led by Britain and Germany, but it was a race of mass proportions, and one that really ushered in a new era of modern naval warfare. The U.S., Japan, Russia, France, Italy, and even Brazil were joining in this game. And just when it seemed that everyone had kind of gotten to the same page here, Britain countered with their production of super dreadnoughts, even larger ships, Orion-class ships in this case, that could do more, go further, and carry far more. And you could see, I think, where this dreadnought Nassau super dreadnought matter is headed. It was just four years after the first dreadnought that the British were producing super dreadnoughts. This is remarkably fast turnover. These ships no longer relied upon coal, but upon oil. A point we must get back to in the wake of World War I. But here we are on its eve. War broke out just four years after the launching of super dreadnoughts. And it was, of course, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand by Gavrilo Princip of the Black Hand in Serbia that ignited the powder keg. World War I proved quite unlike what most participants expected. It was not the fast victory that many had envisioned, years after Europeans had been to war with one another. It was instead like Churchill's premonition when he rode with the Lancers. It was a scene in which killing machines did the majority of the work, and in which mustard gas flooded into trenches, and machine guns halted entire armies in their progress. Stalemate in trenches really defines World War I for all participants, and in particular for those on the Western Front. The poet, the young British poet, Wilfred Owen, summarized it up quite well with the lines. We were marooned in a frozen desert. There was not a single sign of life on the horizon and a thousand signs of death. The marvel is we did not all die of cold. But many did die of cold. More than 950,000 
soldiers from the British Empire would lose their lives in the war. It was in the aftermath of World War I, however, that we see the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of the League of Nations, the shape of which was articulated first by, British, by the British and then by Wilson and the United States. It was decided that European nations would do well by outcome of the League of Nations, by the Treaty of Versailles, and thus the League of Nations, that Europeans might maintain benevolent mandates over territories of those defeated. And with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, this also meant over the vast space that was once controlled by the Ottomans. This led to the creation of mandates for former German territories in East Africa, but also over Palestine, Transjordan, and Iraq for Britain. And why the Middle East for Britain? Why the former Ottoman Mesopotamia? Why did Britain seek to operate under a benevolent mandate to rule this vast territory that was, quite frankly, far off from where they were already? And this, the answer to this, it's complex, but we can point out one very specific reason. Because the regions under control, linked to Egypt, provided the oil and the means to transport oil, the lifeblood of British naval supremacy, in other words. It would thus be oil from the former Ottoman Mesopotamia, from Iraq, that could be transported via the Suez Canal through Egypt. Britain thus reached its height, not by way of conquest, but by way of League of Nations, by way of the League of Nations Class A mandate, to be specific. And you can see here that there is a clear interest in place, right? This ability to rule over an area in a benevolent way, as it would be claimed, to produce oil that could then be transferred through another area uh, that was under British control, or at least uh, close to being entirely under British control, and thus get oil from the Middle East, not to go around Africa, but instead to travel through the Mediterranean far faster to get to where the iron shops of Britain could produce new fleets and send them off to maintain naval dominance. You can see the picture here in place. Of Wilson's famous 14 points, which became the architecture for the League of Nations after the Treaty of Versailles, one of the most important claims is that nations, all nations, should have a right to pursue what's known as national self-determination. This is the right to seek national interests, and indeed, ostensibly at least, the autonomous right to decide the shape of government and policy of the nation itself by the people of that nation. What did this mean after World War I for India? And what did this mean after World War I for Ireland? India, which had sent troops, cavalrymen, gunners, and others, to fight on European soil against the Germans as troops from the British Empire, hoped to see self-determination in practice understandably. By the end of the war, prominent Indian leaders, and not least a young man who had returned to India after participating in peace movements in South Africa, Gandhi, would lead Parliament to issue the 1919 Government of India Act. This is calls from all these prominent leaders, including Gandhi. 
This act did not grant India freedom to pursue national self-determination entirely, but rather it established a diarchy, a dual government, crown rule, if also indirect, for the time would persist in India. So we've moved the ball maybe slightly, but not far enough. And the Irish had already risen up before the end of the war. On Easter Day 1916, Irish Republicans sought to take advantage of Britain's distracted state of war to demand their own autonomy, essentially. British mobilization and success led to the arrest of what were called Sinn Féiners, part of a new Irish nationalist and Republican uh, political outfit, and eventually to trial by those who had participated in this uprising. And this was a trial by court-martial. Some of the Irish tried had actually fought, this is an interesting point, alongside the Dutch Boers in their wars against the British. So again, you have a neighboring British nation under British control sending troops to fight the British in their own war that's international in South Africa. Remarkable. But these executions that came by court-martial would spark a far larger movement of resistance in Ireland. And in this case, it was more organized. Between 1919 and 1920, an Irish Republican army would fight and win victories against the British, leading to an Anglo-Irish treaty in 1921, and eventually to an Irish Free State Act in 1922. Ireland thus won a constitution, but by rule was still divided between the British North and the Free South, regions polarized both politically and religiously due to the existence of an English Protestant majority in the North and an Irish Catholic majority in the South. And so we might see the saying persist in Ireland, by ballot or gun, our day will come. And it would come, or at least it still might come, but we'll have to get to that in two podcasts.